Yeah. <laughs> no, that one didn't do it for you? Uh, no, well, nothing does it for me, you know what I mean? In that category of things, nothing that does it That sounds hard, me. Michael. That sounds rough. A rough existence. It's perfect bliss. I recommend wow. it to everyone. <laughs> if only... I could ascend to such a plane of peace. Yeah, it's pretty great being um, totally, you know, sexually perfect in that way. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Are we uh, recording? We are. Marvelous. How are you, Michael? I'm doing good, Hava. I'm doing good. It's the new year. We're recording mm-hmm. the new year. Yeah, true. I just ordered a refurbished Vitamix blender. Oh, well, where does one get a refurbished Vitamix? Uh, from the Vitamix website. Oh, okay. They just like have, they have a refurbishing situation mm-hmm. all their own. Yep, yep, yep. It's like, you know, it's like a fucking, it's a good ass blender, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's revitamixed. It's revitamixed. And I will be using it for my sacred incense creation, actually. Right. That's immediately what I, I was thinking. I was like, there's no way Michael's going to use this for something normal. So what kind of weird shit? That's what I'm going to get up to. Look, I am trying to pulverize juniper wood. Aren't we all? Down to 100 microns. Wow, that sounds small. I have no idea if it is or not, but context clues tell me. It is small. Yep. I feel like I'm stepping up my incense creation. Well. Yes. Well. Yeah, so. Have you been more satisfied with your creations? Have you tried your, um? what was your binding agent, burdock, that you were experimenting with? Burdock root works great. I've been using sassafras pith. Oh, right. We had a whole conversation about yes, sassafras. Yes, we did. We did. Sassafras. Not long ago. That's right. That's right. That's right. You know, all of that. Listen back if you want. Yeah, to listen back to our, it's not our sassafras episode. It's just some random episode where we talk about sassafras. I went to Grunge Girl's various family engagements for the the, the Christmas thing. And I, uh-huh. gave, I gave incense out to people. Oh, yeah. Well, how was that received? I think they were into it. Yeah. It's kind of like I was one of the wise men, you know what I mean? <laughs> so you were like really humble and cool about it and not weird at all. No, it was totally cool. And <laughs> totally cool about it. It wasn't uh, weird. I mean, it's a great, it's a very like, not that many people could make a gift like that. So it's very special. I made a mold recently to make a pyramid shape incense. Oh, right. To make your little cones. To make my little pyramid cones. So this is a, um, like a three-sided die, like from D and, or not a three-sided die. What am I saying? A D4 is what you're thinking of. A D4. Thank you. Yeah. I made it a mold for a D4 and it's made out of two blocks of wood where half the D4 is carved into one half and the other half is carved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I like had to use chisels and shit. And in order to like get the measurements right, I had to use a bunch of trigonometry to figure out all the angles. Cause. I don't know about all that. Boy uh, stuff. It but. was, yeah, I was having a lot of fun boy stuff making my little incense mold. That sounds great. It was great. It was great. Marvelous. How are you? How are you? Oh my God. In this moment, I'm like, so it gets dark so early right now that once it gets dark, my brain is like, things are over for the day. So I forgot that we were recording at this time. I had a really lovely walk today with my dear friend, took Ace out on the streets. Wintry walk. It's like not some, it's something that's hard to get up the motivation to do. But once you get going, a winter walk is a very pleasant outing. I feel like, you know, since our last recording, I've been 
thinking about wedding planning. I know. Wow. Whoa. Any developments in that regard? Oh my God. So many developments. I've learned so many things already and I can tell what a small total percentage of the things I need to learn it is. I have begun to touch the stress iceberg of the wedding planning, but I think I might be able to have it at my dream venue. Mm. So that's keeping me warm through the process. Right now, it's just a lot of fantasizing. And my boyfriend's mom and grandma are very proactive wedding planning helpers. They keep like finding things for me online and buying them just in case. And then they're like, I hope we're not overstepping. Just tell us. I'm like, no, like, please. Everything you do is something I don't have to do. <laughs> so that's great. So yeah, getting back in the swing of things after such a long winter break. We've entered the unfun part of winter in Rhode Island. And I imagine in Massachusetts where it's like, okay, it was cute for it to be cold for a second. But now it's just like going to keep being cold for several more months. Yeah, January and February are the shittiest months for sure. Yeah. They're pretty depressing. And March is kind of muddy. We're in the three-month awful stage. Yeah, the marathon of seasonal affective disorder. Yeah, but it's like particularly unpredictable. Like every year for the past few years has been either like freezing cold or like not cold and weird. I know. I just sat down on my computer and the little forecast thing on my desktop said snow in an hour, which oh, is yeah. fucking news to me. We're going to get snowed. It's it's going to be bad. So Oh, a big snow? Oh, a huge one. Huge one. What the fuck? Yeah. I'm, a little, I'm a like, I just got to check the weather report. Weather precipitation huh oh yeah cancellations ahead of snowstorm parking ban in effect till monday well damn i gotta get ace out out in the yard after we record so he can do his business before we get sealed into this ice block although i am excited for snow i love snow oh yeah the snow's gonna be good Ugh. i am excited we haven't had especially that first snowfall mm-hmm. 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 it's gonna be all quiet outside from the snow so i understand You've brought me a treat. Yes, I have brought you a treat. Actually, first, before I bring you a treat, did you notice that some people we know were at a protest that shut down the uh, California State Assembly or something? I definitely know at least one person that was there. I don't know how many people I knew that were there. Some number of people that I knew were there. Yeah, I saw some photos and I was like, wait a minute, I know you people, or I have know yeah. of you people. So. Yeah. Yeah, that was cool a little bit. That was a uh, ceasefire protest, California Assembly. But anyway, it's the new year and continuing with our tradition of being inspired by stuff that's happened and that's entered our brains and that influences what we decide to do. Uh Continuing our chain of causality. Yes, that we can't even escape from, even if we wanted Mm -hmm. to. Yep, the limitless binding of karma. Yes, yes. So Sam Biagetti... Of historians. Friend of the show. Friend of the show, the official historian of Hi, How Are You? Right. He's recently started this tradition on his pod of doing a year-end review. Oh. And his year-end review includes a bunch of stuff that's happened around the world, including the whole Israel-Gaza war. And he has a very interesting historical and... Just Sam malicious take. Yeah, he has a Sam, not even a take. He just has a Sam 
just like a Sam. He's just Sam. He's just Sam. <laughs> it seems like what the virtue you're trying to describe is, is that he Sam. is himself. Yes, yes. <laughs> We're going to link to it. He talks about the Israel-Palestine stuff, and he mentions in passing the idea of Am Haaretz. Mm-hmm. It made me start to think about Am Haaretz, and I okay. wanted to bring some stuff about oh, the concept of Am Haaretz. This is a good topic. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. It's fun. So, what do you know about Amha Aretz, Hava? Tell me. Uh, a lot of stuff. It's a person that basically, in, in Talmud and in legal terms, it describes a Jew that is not sufficiently observant of the law, according to the rabbis. There's a lot of halachic norms that govern how we're supposed to interact with Amha Aretz. Um, it's pretty derogatory term. <laughs> In Talmud. Yeah, I don't know. That feels like a good definition. I think that's a good, yeah. We've talked about Amharts before, and it literally means people of the earth, people of yeah. the land. Salt of the earth. Salt of the of earth. People. The folk, the regular folk, people who aren't going into the Beit Midrash and studying, you know, all that right. kind of stuff. I want to bring you a couple passages. This is from Tosefta of Odazara 3. So we are talking in this passage about things that the learned Beit Midrash goers, what various things they can do with the Amha Aretz. Mm-hmm. So here's a little passage. A ma'aseh, which I believe is like a worker, like a hired hand or an associate. So a ma'aseh okay. of Rabban Gamliel HaZakin, who married his daughter to Shimon ben Natanel HaKohen, and agreed with him on the condition that she should not prepare pure foods under his supervision. Rabban Shimon okay. ben Gamliel says this is not necessary, for they do not force a fellow to prepare pure food under the supervision of an Amcha Aretz. So we have a passage where we got two rabbi scholars, two guys who know their Torah. One of them marries the daughter of one of the workers of the rabbi, so someone who is presumably an Amha Aretz. They get married. And so these two rabbis talk about, well, like, what's the deal with, like, food preparation? Because there's all these laws about food. Right. And they're like, okay, well, you're going to marry her, so there's a condition. She shouldn't prepare food unless she's being supervised. Right. Pure foods. Ritually pure foods. Right. And then Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel says, no, that's not necessary because we don't have that rule about supervising an Amha Aretz. It's so just, like we it's, don't, it's a non-issue. We don't, we're not that strict in our community. Like, yeah, it's not, not our strict. norm to require this. Right. And earlier in, in the DAF, just for some context, they're talking about, oh, can you sell like mezuzah scrolls to Amha Aretz? Like, yes, but can you buy them from them? No, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So we get this little tale about Amha Aretz and marriage and food. Now I want to jump to Pesachim 49b. Okay. He should not marry the daughter of an Amha Aretz. Because they are vermin, and their wives are similar to a creeping animal. Damn. Harsh. There you go. We have two kind of uh, rulings, I guess you could say. Two houses not alike in dignity, Right, it would seem. One from Tosefta. It doesn't actually say you can't marry Namha Arts. In fact, it seems to imply that you can. There's just certain conditions. You got to make it good. And then another rabbi, Shimon ben Gamliel, who was a big fucking deal, is like, right. nah, don't worry about it. Nah, yeah, don't worry about it's it. fine, basically. Or, or at least, we don't need this specific condition limiting it. Right. And then, in the Talmud, Pesachim, we are saying we should never marry an Amcha Aretz. Right. At all. In fact, it goes further. 
on Pesachim 49a, it says things like a Torah scholar marrying an Amcha Aretz is like berries intertwining with a bramble, as opposed to two Torah scholars or the daughter of a Torah scholar marrying a Torah scholar. It's compared to two grapevines twisting together. Okay. What do you think of that, Ava? I'm curious. I mean, the way it strikes me is just like, I imagine that there is a, there's sort of a couple different ways the text is showing up here. In the story with the betrothal of Shimon ben Gamliel, I feel like what we're seeing is sort of a recording of a legal precedent and custom in one place. And Mm. with the inflammatory rhetoric, I feel like we're seeing one of the uglier versions of the Talmud describing the world as it wishes it to be. I think the Talmud is saying, like, we don't want you to be doing this. We don't have any proof that you marrying an Amha Aretz is bad, but we're going to say it's really bad so that you will not do it. And so that the stigma around that will accumulate. I discovered these uh, examples because I came across some work by, I believe, a professor named Stephen Wald. So here's some interesting things to notice about these two passages. Okay. Tosefta. It is written in the Mishnah period. It's kind of early. Yeah, right. Okay. I'm on board. It's written in Eretz Israel. It's written in Palestine Israel, right? It's written in that vicinity. Mm-hmm. And that lines up with, you know, the people involved. We have Rabban Gamliel. He is a big deal rabbi who is from that area early Mishnaic time period. Rabban Shimon mm-hmm. ben Gamliel, his son, is the one who is disagreeing with his ruling and saying, nah, we don't we don't need to worry about the Amhar, sharing food with the Amharats. Mm-hmm. Also from that time period, and Rabban Gamliel is one of the people, one of the ten famous martyrs during the destruction of the Second Temple. So mm-hmm. we're in okay. early Mishnaic compilation time. Go to Pesachim 49 a, where they're talking about how you shouldn't marry these Amha'arets, we're in the Babylonian Talmud, and we are in a later layer of Amoraic. Oh, got it. So big gap. Big gap in time. So we are in some Amoraic stom. So the rabbis gained a lot of cultural cachet between these two texts. Yes. There is an argument that has been put forth by this scholar, Stephen Wald, who I believe is like an Israeli professor somewhere. And I think this is supported by other people. This is the general consensus among academic Talmud scholars who are interested in this. But there seem to be in the Jerusalem Talmud, in the Tosefta, in and in older stuff, more Mishnah layer stuff. Yeah, there's like a little bit of negative implications around the Amha Aretz, but it's Right. Like, it's not such a big deal that you this person needs to be supervised during the betrothal. Right. But it's a big enough deal that it came up. It's a big enough deal that it came up. So there's some sort of difference. And then later on in the Babylonian Talmud, they're way more aggressive about their dislike of the Amha Aretz. Maybe Rabbi Meir was like a little bit more of a separatist, too, from the Amha Aretz. And like Mm -hmm. the Babylonian scholars are you know, coincidentally sort of mirroring like his even earlier desire to be separate. But the general pattern is stuff from Eretz Yisrael is more pro Amha Aretz than Babylonian stuff. And older stuff is more pro Amha Aretz than 
the newer stuff on the newer layers wow. of Talmud. I didn't know this, but intuitively makes sense because the older the material, the less widely important the rabbis were and the more they were nerds in their basement playing Talmudic D&D. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like another thing I was thinking about, and this is a bit related to Sam's I don't want to like reveal too much about what Sam talked about. I think people right. We don't want to spoil Sam's uh, year interview episode on our podcast. I don't know if you mentioned this in the episode or if we talked about it separately, but we talked about how there's this myth that the Jews were all expelled after the destruction of the Second Temple. Right. But that probably isn't really the case. Like, it's really hard to expel all the Jews in reality. Maybe something else happened. Maybe the Jews with power, the politically important Jews, left Mm -hmm. or were expelled. But I've looked at other papers that suggest that even in like 4th century CE, there were plenty of Jews around. In fact, the majority population of Palestine was Jews. And it only started to become majority Christian and then ultimately majority Muslim like in the centuries following the Mm 4th century. And so I was thinking about... These Babylonian scholars, these are the descendants of people that did leave, either because they wanted to or they were kicked out, we're not sure. But they must be aware that there are still Jews in Eretz Yisrael that did not leave, presumably maybe even not the descendants of major scholars. And I think there might be some resentment there, like historical resentment. Oh, interesting. So this is like me really making psychological guesses about... Right. These people. But it kind of jives with what you were saying about like these guys are cosplaying their ideal society in exile. Mm-hmm. They're kind of becoming hardcore in a particular way. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't know. I feel like it's one of those things that's a little bit beyond what you and I can know because it feels like it's about such a. Uh, sort of like subtle and subjective dynamic about like why why were the authorities talking this way is such a whys are such a hard thing to figure out in history I feel it's like it's true i mean it is very hard but what you're saying like makes sense to me i mean there's plenty of there's a lot of different perspectives on the relationship between babylon and eretz israel and the amoraic period but definitely some of them are have that rivalry vibe to them but this isn't even like about a rivalry between the scholars from each you know i don't know if, if the babylonian jews are talking about their babylonian amha arets you know what i mean or if they're mm. referring to the historic amha arets or the amha arets that were left behind right what amha arets are they even picturing yeah. in their mind when they say don't marry this amha arets yeah Are they talking about the Jews that they know still exist over there? Mm -hmm. This is making me think about one of the things I researched when I wrote my teshuva about Nita for trans women is this great paper by, I think, Shai Secunda about the development of Nita and how it might have been related to like cultural one-upsmanship between Jews and their Babylonian neighbors, basically like Zoroastrians thought the Jews weren't pure enough. Jews thought the Zoroastrians weren't pure enough. And it was just like back and forth, like, oh, like you don't have sex for like a week. We don't have sex for like two weeks. And just like the the various laws of each culture just escalated in an attempt to sort of be the more pure of the two. 
I mean, I, I can believe that. These kind of weird, you know, rulings that we have perhaps are based on things like our weird insecurities between people or weird Mm -hmm. issues that people have between each other and then like we're the inheritors of the rules and also of the psychologies that get passed down to us all right you know unknowingly it's interesting today that i mean i'm i know we still have plenty of people to whom like the religiousness of their jewish partner is a very important factor and whether they'll marry them but i'm also thinking about how i feel like there's a dynamic that's somewhat less prevalent, but like there's a dynamic where people are weirded out by their potential partner being too religious. You know, like it goes it goes the opposite direction as well now. Like someone who was raised in a secular Jewish family, their parents might be shocked if they started dating someone orthodox. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. You yeah. know? Totally. It's sort of like you're not gonna like move to a kibbutz, are you? There's there's this uh reverse version of it that we have today yeah there is here's the thing all this stuff makes me kind of sad actually because we've inherited all these laws and customs and traditions and Mm -hmm. we can't really figure out all the reasons why we do them that's okay but it is weird to think that there's a portion of them that we do for like weird reasons not just like reasons that are like we politically disagree with but like reasons that are like we don't do this because like we're really insecure or like we do this because we really hate those people over there that's even more in some ways repulsive to me than we did we do this because we need to protect against homosexuality what you're saying is you've seen how the sausage is made metaphorically speaking and it's it's depressed you about the origins of tradition well, especially given the historical context we're in right now. Yeah, fair. Like, let's assume for a second that there is this sort of, we despise the the Amcha Aretz that are left in Israel, you know? Like, that's part. let's imagine that's part of the psychic soup of, like, the Babylonian Jews mentality, which is mm-hmm. who we're essentially descended from religiously uh, in some ways. And then... You know, we go back to Israel and, and colonize it. Is that resentment of the, you know, the Amha Aretz, literal, the Amha Aretz? You, you know what I mean? There's just strange. Right. It's a, like going into the other ingredients of the colonial soup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going into some weird soup. And how the sausage is made, it's, it's, it sometimes makes me sad, actually, to be a Jew a little bit. Yeah. I mean, that's been a big theme of the Israel Gaza war, has been me feeling. Uh, ashamed of the Jewish people, which I think is not. Oftentimes, I'm really trying to like stop myself from experiencing feelings of shame, but this feels like a pro- appropriate and reasonable emotional response, as long as it's like not immobilizing, but rather mobilizing. It reminds me too. I mean, this is like some immobilizing shit, but it reminds me too of the elephant that's always been in the room for me about secular liberal Judaism in America which is that a lot of secular liberal Jews think they're better than everyone else. Sure. And that's really, yeah. it just reminds me of that uncomfortable mm-hmm. feeling that may or may not be true, whatever. It's definitely not true for everyone. Not all Jews, mm-hmm. people. Not all Jews. You know what I'm But it's just yeah. like, oh, God. It's a complicated soup of emotions. Yeah. One of the things that often gives me hope and one of the reasons I like have has encouraged me to work for more radical Judaism is because I feel like the number of Jews in the world 
is small enough that the actions of small groups of individuals can have visible and meaningful impact on a on the total scale of Jewry. Yeah, yeah. I support that. I I am very much for being a part of a small group that you can have an impact on. Yeah. I'm just offering this as a if there are parts that are that make you sad, at least it's in a soup whose flavor you have the power to affect. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You can sprinkle a little pepper in there. But what this does make me interested in, actually, is like, what were the folk customs and traditions of the Amha Arats? Like, what right. were they doing? Yes. Like, what kind of stuff didn't get passed down because it just was there wasn't such a focused effort to record it and transmit it right and how similar is that to some of the things that we do now in modern right were Judaism? they smoking wheat seems like they might have they might have been smoking wheat archaeologically it's been suggested and so maybe this is revealing too much about what sam has to say in his episode but perhaps the source of that information is in studying the folk customs and traditions of Palestinians. Mmm. Twist. And I will leave it at that. Wow. So this whole episode has been an advertisement for Sam's year in review episode. Perhaps, perhaps. Uh, so go listen to that. Before we wrap up, I'll also say that Shel Mala's next class has registration open right now. It's going to be called The Priest Eat at Midnight. It is taught by the miraculous friend of the show, Koro Shishiva Binyakoats. So we'll put that link in the I was going to say the chat, but it's the description. So go sign up for that and go check out Sam's year in review episode and try to add a better flavor to the soup of Judaism wherever you are. Yeah, add to the soup. Add to the soup. I'm going to go make chicken soup right now, actually. Okay. Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov.